for a long time, the U.S. nuclear uh, thinking was preoccupied uh, by the Russian threat, and China is a much smaller secondary consideration. Uh, but now I think the new thinking is uh, China has uh, you know become uh, a near competitor, if not uh, you know an equal competitor in the nuclear domain. And U.S. has to uh, plan about uh, the scenario where Russia and China would coordinate and present a joint nuclear threat to the United States. So, given that Putin is, I guess, threatening nuclear war, now seems to be a good time to have an expert on the on the Chinese nuclear program to discuss. We have Tong Zhao, scholar at at the Carnegie Center based in Beijing, who focuses on China's nuclear program. Co-hosting with me today is Raven Witherspoon, a current Schwartzman scholar. Welcome to Try to Talk, you two. Thank you for having me. So, first off, the war. Um, what struck? Um, what, what's most? What's been most striking to you watching China's uh, China processing and responding to uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine over the past few weeks? So, the most striking thing is uh, it is apparent that uh, China has a fundamental different perception. And understanding about the nature of the war um, from the perception of the Western countries, you know, China genuinely believes that uh, this is a war that was provoked by the United States and the Western countries, uh, and Russia was forced into taking action to legitimate security interests. And after the war started, uh, China sees what it believes is. Western countries uh, uniting together uh, and taking all sorts of illegal uh, measures to strangulate Russia. Um, it was a joint attack uh, with the aim to uh, not only destabilize Russia, but, al but also to um, provoke internal instability with the eventual goal of uh, maybe overthrowing the Russian uh, government, the Russian system. So that's, you know, given this perception about the nature of the war, it is uh, no surprising that um, China takes its current position of refusing to condemn Russia uh, and has shown interest in uh, providing Russia with some economic support. You know, it is even possible that China has been considering uh, military support uh, to Russia as part of their uh, bilateral uh, military uh, cooperation. Um, and the information um, gap between China and the rest of the world is also very salient. The two, uh, you know, the Chinese people, including Chinese experts, they absorb different information from the Western countries. Uh, you know, one interesting example is the uh, Russian accusation of the U.S., conducting illegal biological weapon research in a number of bio labs in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, the majority of Chinese people, including the majority of Chinese security policy experts, seem to genuinely believe in those accusations. Uh, so when you have completely opposite understandings about basic facts, there is no way that China is going to see eye to eye with Western countries about this war and about what they should do to, together uh, to end this war. Yeah. So let, let's stay on that for a second. You mentioned uh, your senses that the, the Chinese government has a sincere belief 
that, you know, it was actually all NATO's fault, I guess. What what are the kind of data points to support that um, uh, that argument? How do you sort of uh, divine between sincere and unsincere uh, interpretations of um, of the of of what's going on in uh, policymakers heads? The concern about NATO is longstanding. Uh, and very deep, you know, even when I was uh, a student in middle school, uh, when the NATO uh, mistakenly um, bombed Chinese embassy in Belgrade during the uh, Kosovo War, you know, the uh, overwhelming national narrative was very uh, anti-NATO. Uh, it's, you know, everyone was told, you know, uh, NATO was... Uh, uh, you know, a, a military uh, alliance that, you know, that is behaving in a very aggressive way to achieve its hegemonic objective. Uh, you know, they blatantly violated all basic international laws and rules. So that narrative is very deep, very deeply embedded in all Chinese uh, minds. Um so growing up in this environment, there is no doubt that uh, the majority of Chinese people, they uh, have this deep concern about NATO for a very long time. So they have been interpreting um, uh, current uh, contemporary international affairs through that uh, lens. Um, so there is no doubt the, 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 the blame on NATO is, uh, is genuine. Sure. So I guess the other question is like, you know, there is a there is a potential counter narrative that you can buy into what's going on here, which um, sort of takes, uh, you know, traditional Chinese foreign policy principles and applying, you know, things like self-determination and non-interference in, in um, uh, other countries affairs and looking at that uh, and, and, and sort of using those. Um, using those lenses, you would come to a very different conclusion about what's going on. So, um, in 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 your sense, or why have why did those narratives not not sort of hold sway in this case? I think uh, it is because uh, China believes that uh, the Western countries they never really respected international laws and principles. When we are facing a situation where it's apparent that the Western countries are being aggressive, you know, they try to uh, destroy Russia. And after that, they will focus their uh, fire against China, right? Uh, so China will be their next target. Um, so when you face this exist existential threat perception, you know, I think politicians will conclude it will, it will be naive uh, if you simply uphold um, so-called principles, uh, international laws, when, when your enemies never respect those. So I think the the feeling here is the stakes are too high uh, to be to to be naive, and we have to prioritize pres you know preserving our own uh, uh, strategic interests, which is to um, you know. Um, help Russia from being uh, destroyed by the West uh, and uh, maintain the very important uh, China-Russia strategic partnership. So it's interesting because, um, you know, you made an argument on Twitter that uh, your sense is, in fact, that the, the Chinese government didn't know the war was going to happen before it started. And, you know, this seems like something you would want to tell a strategic partner you were going to do before you did it. Um, so first off, why do you think uh, Beijing wasn't uh, aware? 
And how do you think that, um, you know, as you argued, them not being told uh, will impact the, the way uh, Beijing will see Moscow going forward? I think, um, you know, according to um, revelations um, from U.S. Uh, intelligence community, um, China's own uh, intelligence community uh, did not seem to uh, have provided Chinese leaders with an accurate uh, prediction about Russian uh, intention. They seem to, you know, the Chinese intel community uh, seems to have failed uh, to uh, predict the war. Uh, I think uh, before the war, the the mainstream Chinese <clears throat> thinking was... Uh, the mainstream thinking within the Chinese policy community was that uh, Putin was deploying massive troops on the border of Ukraine um, in order to make a military posture. And uh, he was trying to use this posture uh, to create enough coercive leverage to achieve his political goal. So it, it was you know, possible that uh, under such coercive pressure, uh, Ukraine and Western countries would make necessary concessions, so there will be no need to conduct a military operation. But even if the Ukraine Ukrainians and Westerners didn't uh, concede, maybe Russia would launch some uh, limited uh, and uh, uh, and low intensity uh, uh, military operation. Uh, and, and even in that case, it would be a quick uh, uh, type of military operation. Um, I don't think China foresaw a, a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and certainly didn't foresee this war uh, taking uh, dragging on for so long. You know, even you know, from Putin's perspective, uh, you know, even though he has shown, even though he probably had a strong inclination to uh, launch a full-scale war uh, in early February when he met Chinese uh, counterpart Mr. Xi in Beijing. I don't think he had 100% made that final decision, right? He, as I said, he was probably waiting and see whether his coercive pressure would achieve the political goal without having to push the button. Uh, but after, you know, after he left Beijing, after it became more and more apparent that there was no uh, concession, from the other part, then he eventually made the decision. He apparently kept his decision to a very small number of uh, high-level officials uh, in his inner circle. Most of his civilian and military officials, uh, let alone his soldiers, uh, didn't appear to know uh, his decision. So when he was not 100% uh, ready uh, or deter fully determined to go to war, uh, it was not surprising that he didn't, I think he didn't fully reveal his uh, war plan to uh, Mr. Xi uh, in Beijing on February the 4th. So, so speaking of pressing the button, um, most of your scholarship focuses on, uh, on, on nuclear policy. So I guess I'm curious before we jump into this, um, you know, this is a kind of like a very dark, serious topic to devote your um, uh, your scholarship to. What um, what 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 personally got you uh, interested and passionate about um, studying and, and writing on this? Well, it was exactly because uh, the, the stakes uh, involved uh, in these issues um, 
I, I was uh, a student in physics um, when I was uh, studying at Tsinghua University. I happened to take the class taught by Professor Li Bin, uh, who is also a nuclear uh, a physicist, but uh, he started uh, arms control issues and became a leading uh, arms control expert uh, in China. And uh, he uh, taught this class on uh, science, technology, and international security. Um, and I became really interested in arms control issues, nuclear weapons policy after taking this class and have since been working with him uh, on many of these issues. So I, you know, I think it is, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's always puzzling to me, uh, you know, why human beings, we have to use nuclear weapons to threaten each other. Um, uh, otherwise, we couldn't even live peacefully together. Uh, why do we have to do this? Um, uh, when the risks are so high, and the more I started, small I studied it, the more I realized, you know how uh, how dangerous the the nuclear posture really is. How close we once were uh, to a nuclear catastrophe uh, during the Cold War, and even today, I think the risk of nuclear conflict is still higher than most people really realize. So let's. Let's do a, um, since you mentioned history, let's do a brief history of China's Cold War uh, uh, nuclear development and nuclear policy. How did it, um, how did it evolve, um, uh, starting with Mao and then through the, um, uh, through the subsequent premieres? Well, so basically, uh, China felt it was threatened uh, uh, with nuclear weapons uh, by the United States during the uh, Korean War and uh, the uh, Taiwan Strait crisis in the 1950s. And I think Chinese leaders also felt uh, in order for China to become a respected uh, uh, country, uh, power, uh, it needed uh, uh, nuclear weapons. Otherwise, uh, the Western countries wouldn't uh, listen to China with respect. Um, so China started its program in the late 1950s, received a lot of support from the Soviet Union. Uh, but after China-Soviet relationship uh, deteriorated, uh, China uh, basically uh, worked on its nuclear program independently. So it successfully detonated its first nuclear bomb in 1964. Uh, it continued investing in the program, even though uh, the Chinese economy was running into huge difficulties. So the program uh, received less funding uh, during periods of economic uh, hardship. Uh, but China managed to gradually and incrementally improve uh, its nuclear uh, capability and acquired a basic strategic deterrent capability by the 1980s. Um, and in the decades following that, uh, China, you know, as its economy started to take off, uh, China has constantly invested in the program. So we have seen uh, a modest but uh, constant effort to modernize its nuclear arsenal. But all this uh, seems uh, to have changed uh, since the uh, early uh oh you know since early 2010s uh when- well let's let, let, let me stop you let me stop you we'll get there um i don't know if you saw that one uh or sort of other recent movies it seems like there's like a a recent resurgence in idealizing 
the the nuclear program of the 1960s. Um, is has this struck you as well? What what do you think is driving the um, kind of particular glorifying of that of that moment in history in recent years? Yes, it's uh, you know China's successful uh, nuclear program, or it's sometimes called the Liang Dan Yixing, uh, which actually refers to the nuclear bomb, uh, the, the the rocket, and and the satellite programs. So China, you know, was has been very proud of its uh, achievements in successfully developing these uh, strategic capabilities. And it has been used uh, as an example of uh, the you know success of Chinese model, the capacity of uh, the Chinese government to uh, concentrate resources on some uh, strategic projects and make you know uh, impressive achievements. Um, and you know the uh, this is an example that can inspire. Uh, patriotic sentiments in the general public, the defense industry, uh, the nuclear establishment that helped um, produce uh, nuclear weapons, missiles, uh, were widely uh, portrayed as the most patriotic organs of the uh, Chinese society. Um, it's you know very different from how Western countries um, uh, look at defense industry. You know they were portrayed as a selfish uh, defense, defense military industrial complex that pursue their own interests that sometimes are, you know, conflicting with the national interests of the general public. But here, you know, the defense industry, they are portrayed as, uh, you know, very uh, selfless, very selfless. They, uh, you know, all they want to do is to promote China's national interests. They make huge self-sacrifices in this progress. Um, so this is all part of, um, you know, this national narrative that, you know, if we work together, if we all try to sacrifice ourselves uh, in promotion of our collective interests, we will become a strong and respected power in the international community. You know, it's interesting, Tong. I was in um, uh, New Mexico uh, for much of December of this past year. And I made a point to, you know, go to Los Alamos and go to all the sort of nuclear history museums. And it was really interesting how America framed it, because, you know, on the one hand, there is this incredible engineering accomplishment, right, of being the first country in the world to, to figure out how to how to do this sort of thing. But, you know, tinged with all of it, um, and and tinged in particular in, in sort of the, 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 the best books that cover um, this, you know, the Oppenheimer documentary, making the, ma- the, the making of the, uh, the Oppenheimer biographies of late, the making of the atomic bomb, which is, a, oh my God, the best book ever, everyone should go and read, um, is this real sort of sorrow and regret and guilt, um, which comes with being the only country in the world to have uh, used uh, nuclear weapons to kill people. And it's, it, it, it's, it's interesting and, and makes a bit of sense, I guess, that a, that a nation that hasn't you know used this used this weapon in um uh in war can can have a somewhat different emotional relationship to the uh to the creation story of the weapon than um uh, than the US which um there's a lot of uh um you know there's blood on the hands of uh of the folks who um uh, who created America's bomb yes the you know uh in comparison there is no similar uh self reflection uh 
uh, on the part of Chinese uh, nuclear scientists and engineers. Uh, you rarely see people uh, reflecting on their role uh, in uh, creating these capabilities. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very different. Kind of coming back to China, nuclear weapons and China's defensive strategic posture, how did nuclear weapons evolve doctrinally um, coming up into, into, you know, from the 60s up until, say, 2010? You know, in, uh, officially, there is no uh, change in uh, nuclear doctrine. Uh, China's uh, longstanding position is uh, China's nuclear weapons only aim at achieving one goal, which is to uh, prevent uh, other countries from using nuclear weapons on China. And if that deterrence fails, then China would conduct nuclear retaliation. Uh, it doesn't seek to use nuclear weapons to deter any non-nuclear military threats. Um, so in order to fulfill this goal, uh, the doctrine is China should acquire a second strike capability, a credible second strike capability, uh, which means um, even if the enemy conducts overwhelming uh, comprehensive first strike on China, uh, China can still uh, have enough nuclear weapons uh, surviving this uh, disarming strike, uh, which China can use to conduct uh, retaliation and uh, inflict uh, enough damage on the enemy. And this uh, capability to conduct nuclear retaliation would deter the enemy from using or threatening to use nuclear weapons on China in the first place. So that has been the long-standing position, um, but there is debate among Chinese experts community about uh, how uh, assured uh, a second strike capability China should pursue. Uh, some experts believe, you know, as long as uh, the enemy wouldn't be able to tell uh, if it has the one hundred percent. Capability to fully destroy Chinese nuclear arsenal, as long as there is a chance that some Chinese nuclear weapons could survive and could be used in the retaliation, that uh, uncertainty would be uh, good enough to deter an enemy nuclear uh, threat. Uh, but some Chinese experts think that China needs to demonstrate a one hundred percent assured uh, retaliation capability. Uh, there should be no doubt in the enemy mind that China can uh, retaliate and can cause unacceptable damage. Uh, so I think this debate is evolving and maybe shifting towards uh, pursuing more assured uh, second strike capability. And that may explain some of China's recent uh, nuclear modernization efforts. So China's recent modernization efforts, which you've just mentioned, have generated a lot of buzz in international security circles. Could you briefly summarize some of the more pertinent developments in Chinese nuclear capabilities in the last couple of years, and then also touch on how doctrine and rhetoric have shifted alongside these changes, although not officially, um, what some of their conjecture seems to be about how things might be changing? China has officially um, embarked on an effort to develop a nuclear triad capability, which means China is pursuing uh, land-based nuclear capabilities, uh, sea-based uh, nuclear capabilities, and airborne uh, nuclear capabilities. 
um, which is a departure from China's traditional emphasis on land-based nuclear forces. China uh, didn't really have uh, an air-based capability for decades and uh, only started uh, to develop uh, sea-based nuclear capabilities in recent decades. And it was revealed uh, last year that uh, China appears to be building at least three major silo bases uh, in northwestern China. And each of these silo bases uh, may, um, um, may be armed, may, you know, may consist of uh, more than 100 um, missile silos. And these silos appear to be for the deployment of intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs. Um, so this this development alone could add uh, hundreds of uh, additional uh, nuclear um, warheads to China's arsenal. For decades, it was believed that China has maintained a very small arsenal of about 200 nuclear warheads. Uh, so you can tell, you know, this is a major uh, increase of the Chinese arsenal size. And this is only part of what China appears to be doing uh, to modernize its nuclear forces. In addition to the silo bases, uh, China is also adding more uh, land uh, road mobile uh, ICBM missiles. And China is uh, massively uh, developing its sea-based nuclear forces. It currently has uh, six uh, nuclear uh, ballistic missile submarines. Each can uh, carry uh, up to 12 uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and the, according to U.S. DoD assessment, China will add more uh, nuclear strategic submarines to its current fleet uh, in the coming years. And China is, as I said, developing uh, airborne nuclear capability as well, according to U.S. assessment, uh, and is conducting uh, development on a new uh, long-range strategic uh, stealthy uh, bomber that can be nuclear capable. So taking all this into consideration, the U.S. DOD predicts China will uh, develop up to 700 nuclear weapons by 2027 and more than 1,000 by the end of this decade, 2030. So again, this is a very uh, significant and very quick uh, increase of Chinese nuclear arsenal. And you know, looking looking at the postures, in addition to the capabilities, uh, there are also signs that China is thinking about developing launch under attack or launch on warning capabilities, uh, meaning that uh, China is acquiring a strategic early warning uh, system, and China can use this uh, early warning system to um, detect an enemy launch of missiles as soon as it happens and uh, then uh, be able to uh, uh, you know, uh, launch a retaliation even before the enemy warheads would detonate over Chinese territory. Uh, this is a posture that U.S. and Russia, um, this is a capability that U.S. and Russia have already uh, 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 possessed, and China appears um, inspired to acquire some similar capabilities. This will be a major change in Chinese nuclear posture because for decades, uh, international observers believe uh, China uh, has maintained a very modest and recessed nuclear posture. China probably uh, separates its warheads from the missiles during peacetime and even store them at separate locations 
uh, this would reduce the risk of um, unauthorized nuclear launch. Uh, but if China is now shifting towards uh, launch on warning or launch under attack postures, uh, that will, I think, uh, make the situation more volatile, uh, might increase the risk of uh, you know, false alarming leading to unnecessary uh, use of nuclear weapons. It is also reported that China is uh, conducting research on orbital hypersonic uh, weapon system that can be nuclear capable. This is a type of capability that uh, only China is reportedly developing. There is no uh, uh, confirmation from China and uh, no explanation about why China may be interested in such capabilities. Um, so I think uh, the US and, and Western countries are worried, uh, not only because China is uh, increasing the numbers and changing some of the postures, but also because uh, you know it is unclear what military motivation uh, is driving such Chinese development. In the nearly five years I've been doing this show, recording remotely has always been a bit of a nightmare. Halfway through a great conversation, a connection would die, servers would time out, the audio quality would go busted. The better a conversation went, the more stressed out I got that I would end up losing the audio. I tried at least five different software solutions, including Zencaster, Zoom, Ringer, and Squadcast, but all of them lacked the functionality and reliability of what I finally landed on, Riverside. Riverside has a great feature suite from local and cloud-based recording so that even if my guest internet is garbage, I still have decent sound to share with you all, to 4K video, which I'm going to start using to spruce up the China Talk YouTube channel. But most important, it just works. Before Riverside, 10% of my recordings broke. But in the past two years I've been rolling with Riverside, it has been absolutely rock solid. If you're a podcaster or YouTuber, or just someone who runs online events, check the platform out at riverside.fm. And this concern on the part of Western countries, it, it seems that some people are also a bit concerned about potential arms race dynamics. Um, you mentioned in some of your writings previously that China is not particularly interested in arms control at the moment. And with the, the Pentagon projections that you just mentioned, that China could potentially triple its arsenal in the coming years. Do you have any thoughts on what the world might look like if China were to seek that kind of numerical parity with the U.S. and Russia and how policy might shift accordingly? Um, I don't think China is currently um, aiming to seek nuclear parity with U.S. and Russia. Uh, we, we, need to, uh, we need to remember that the U.S. and Russian nuclear arsenals are still uh, at least uh, one order of magnitude uh, greater than Chinese nuclear arsenal. It would uh, take China a lot of effort, a lot of uh, resources and money uh, to reach that level. Uh, and it's more likely that the Chinese leadership now uh, wants to massively increase the arsenal um, in, in an open-ended um, process uh, and will make another evaluation later uh, to understand whether China needs to further expand its arsenal or not. Uh, so I think it's, it could be an open-ended process with no final decisions reached uh, to reach nuclear parity. Uh, that said, uh, given the uh, speed of the Chinese nuclear buildup and the lack of transparency about its end, uh, of, of its end goal, uh, this could motivate the US planners to think in a worst-case scenario manner. And uh, there is already discussion in Washington that uh, it's time for U.S. to consider uh, 
the threats of uh, Chinese and Russian nuclear uh, programs uh, simultaneously. Uh, for a long time, the U.S. nuclear uh, thinking was preoccupied uh, by the Russian threat, and China is a much smaller secondary consideration. Uh, but now I think the new thinking is uh, China has uh, you know, become uh, a near competitor, if not uh, you know, an equal competitor in the nuclear domain. And U.S. has to uh, plan about the scenario where Russia and China would coordinate and present a joint nuclear threat to the United States. And in that case, the U.S. may need to um, you know, significantly uh, readjust its nuclear capabilities and the nuclear postures. That's horrifying. Yes, that's <laughs> very, very destabilizing. Uh, you know, that will, I think, lead to, uh, you know, a very destabilizing situation. If, if the U.S. believes it has to have the capability to deal with both Chinese and Russian capabilities simultaneously, you know, that, you know, and China and Russia believe that they, they also need to independently uh, counter uh, counter American nuclear threat. You know, it's very hard to create a, a stable uh, situation among the three parties. You know, because I don't think Russia and China have a deep enough trust to fully incorporate their nuclear capabilities and fully coordinate their nuclear strategy, doctrine, and posture. So Russia and China probably still see their objective as, as being able to independently deter the U.S., whereas the U.S. may feel the necessity to deter both Russia and China simultaneously. So how to create a stable situation when they're thinking, you know, uh, apparently uh, different is, you know, is this a challenge? Uh, yeah, how, how to create a stable situation when, when Putin is invading countries is also a, um, a tricky question. I, I'm curious, Tong, if there was any sort of reaction among the among among china nuclear experts about the uh, you know putin raising his nuclear warning and and that now being a, a a specter which is hanging over the current conflict is that at all impacting uh or you think may 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 impact future calculations about how china th- should think about its its nuclear posture going forward the fact that you know we're, we're much closer than we've been in 30 years to anything like this happening yeah, um, but I think in general, China appears uh, mostly sympathetic to Putin's uh, recent measures to raise the alert levels of its nuclear forces and uh, to conduct two uh, nuclear exercises um, after the invasion started. I think uh, China basically uh, thinks that um, Putin was uh, raising the nuclear alert level as a deterrent uh, to dissuade uh, NATO and Western countries from providing uh, military support to Ukraine and from further intervening in the war, including uh, uh, from you know imposing more economic sanctions on Russia. So China interprets Russia's nuclear signaling in a in a you know uh, in a defensive uh, perspective, believing that this was all. A defensive Russian effort um, to deter external intervention. Uh, so it was not that particularly alarmed uh, by Putin's nuclear cyber rattling. 
whereas in the West, uh, I think uh, there is this concern that Putin is becoming deranged, right? If if he's cornered, if he uh, faces a major uh, conventional military uh, defeat uh, in Ukraine, uh, he could uh, deliberate uh, escalate the war to higher levels, potentially across the nuclear threshold. Uh, so in the West, the the uh, threat perception about uh, Russian uh, nuclear escalation uh, is more serious. Whereas in China, um, I don't think China fully appreciate the risk of nuclear escalation. Uh, as I said, they think Putin uh, is acting rationally and uh, simply in a self-defensive manner. So they don't think there is a serious risk of nuclear escalation. Uh, maybe that's contributing to China's less sense of urgency uh, in doing everything to end the war as soon as possible before it further escalates. And by the way, you know, the reason uh, China itself has been building up its nuclear forces in recent years is also because China wanted to uh, be able to deter U.S. and Western military intervention in a future conventional conflict over the Taiwan Strait or South China Sea. So Chinese nuclear thinking, I think, is similar to the Russian nuclear thinking, which is a bigger nuclear arsenal, a greater nuclear capability, would uh, would help limit the military op- options of the U.S. and Western countries in the conventional conflict. Uh, so I think that similarity in nuclear thinking also makes China more sympathetic uh, to Russia's current nuclear uh, posture and be less worried about uh, the escalation risk uh, over Ukraine. The distinction between tactical and strategic nuclear weapons, tactical, you know, are ta- the, the sort of idea of a tactical nuclear weapon is a, is a smaller payload directed more at kind of like winning a position on a battlefield, uh, you know, in a particular fight, um, as opposed to strategic nuclear weapons, which are, you know, aimed to blow up entire cities. Um, you know, there is a concern that, Putin would consider using these sort of smaller nuclear weapons as a as a signaling mechanism, um, which wouldn't necessarily you know, be killing hundreds of thousands of people, um, but uh, you know will 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 show he's kind of willing to go there to scare uh, to scare the world. I'm curious, um, you know, to what extent there is, you know, what what the kind of escalatory ladder looks like from the from the Chinese perspective, whether there is this distinction between tactical and and strategic nuclear weapons if there's been kind of capabilities developed which aren't you know really really big bombs and how that kind of debate plays out internally in um uh, in china on this topic well once the nuclear threshold is crossed whether with uh, large yield nuclear weapons or low yield tactical nuclear weapons i, I think uh, we will be entering a complete uh, completely new era of human history. The nuclear taboo that has been maintained for decades after Hiroshima and Nagasaki would be broken. I think from the Chinese perspective, um, any use of nuclear weapons is, is, you know, is uh, a major uh, activity. Um, I don't think China really thinks that uh, tactical nuclear use uh, would be less uh, destructive. In the Chinese case, you know, China itself has been uh, certainly developing uh, uh, theater-range nuclear forces. It is not, uh, it is unknown whether uh, China itself has uh, low-yield uh, tactical uh, nuclear warheads. 
But in terms of uh, the delivery systems, China has been uh, procuring a larger number of theater range uh, nuclear delivery systems. It's DF-21 media-range ballistic missile, DF-26 intermediate range missiles. They are all uh, mostly useful against regional targets, uh, including uh, U.S. military bases uh, in uh, East Asia, or uh, Guam, or uh, U.S. aircraft carrier groups that would sail close to Chinese coast. Um, but this is not necessarily an indicator of China willing to uh, initiate a uh, nuclear conflict uh, using a theater range nuclear forces. I think because of the fact that China's conventional uh, military capability is advancing very quickly, I think China has a growing confidence that it could achieve conventional military superiority against the, the U.S. forces in the Asia-Pacific region uh, in the future, which reduces the need for China to threaten or initiate nuclear use first in a conventional war. Uh, but because of this growing Chinese conventional superiority, I think China starts to worry in recent years that the U.S. may have greater incentive in the future to initiate a nuclear conflict. And therefore, China needs to um, uh, deter that. And the Chinese investment into theater-range nuclear forces could be uh, a motivation uh, to acquire the capability to respond in kind if the U.S. Uh, you know, initiate a limited nuclear war, then China should have the capability to respond in a proportionate way to also uh, retaliate in a limited manner using nuclear weapons. And that capability to respond in kind may be able to deter the U.S. from starting a limited nuclear conflict in the first place. So this thinking uh, may be driving uh, China's development of theater-range nuclear forces. But again, this is a very dangerous path to uh, embark on because once both countries are aiming at achieving escalation ma management, um, uh, you know, it is very hard to contain arms race because there is no clear, there is no clear uh, boundary of of uh, what is sufficient uh, uh, crisis management capability. Uh, it is very easy uh, for the uh, two sides to eventually be dragged into a competition over escalation dominance, um, something that happened between the United States and Soviet Union during the Cold War. Uh, so I think this is a, a very important threat uh, facing uh, the two countries when it comes to uh, their nuclear relationship. So with this in mind, the idea that the West may be becoming increasingly more alarmed about these risks and potential miscalculation or accidents while Chinese uh, policymakers are not necessarily convinced by their ideas. I'm wondering uh, what steps you believe might be taken to strengthen uh, trust or, or at least some mutual understanding around these topics. I know you've previously written about potential confidence building measures, um, joint technological research. Uh, what do you think might be most helpful in this moment or, or at least might be acceptable to both sides in trying to gain some clarity around the risks of nuclear uh, escalation conflict? I think we are uh, reaching a point where uh, China may be giving up on the hope to uh, build confidence and trust with the United States uh, through uh, diplomatic engagement. 
um, I think the over the yeah, mainstream thinking here is uh, the U.S. is determined to contain China and use and will use every means possible uh, to do so. The U.S. is, uh, you know, uh, uh, hypocritical in um, uh, raising uh, the nuclear risks. Uh, they uh, employ double standards, so they are not uh, sincere. Uh, in achieving nuclear stability. Uh, the U.S. is really driving, uh, driven by the desire to acquire nuclear primacy uh, over China so that the U.S. would have uh, even stronger uh, political leverage uh, against China. Um, and with this understanding of, of Western intent and U.S. intent, uh, I think this strengthens the power-centric thinking uh, in China's policy community. Uh, people believe that it's meaningless uh, to uh, seek uh, reaching common standing with the United States. The U.S. only understands uh, power, um, so China should concentrate on building up its own capabilities. By the time that China can clearly demonstrate uh, its superior capability, uh, China, by the time China can clearly shift the balance of international power, to China's favor, that's when the U.S. will eventually recognize the Chinese uh, model would uh, respect China uh, and uh, would listen to China um, as an equal partner. I think that's that's why uh, you know we're seeing China investing so much resources into uh, nuclear modernization. That doesn't mean that uh, there is nothing left to be done. The stakes are simply too high. You know we. If we enter uh, a down spiraling, a downward spiraling uh, nuclear arms race, it's not only uh, costly economically, but also really dangerous uh, because it does increase the risk of nuclear use. Um, and uh, and a future uh, military confrontation between China and the West is you know uh, is possible uh, over Taiwan Strait or other regional flashpoints. And uh, when that happens, the risk of nuclear escalation cannot be rolled out. Uh, so something has to be done. Um, I think um, it's still possible to have some uh, conversations and exchanges between China and the United States. China, I think, still is interested in uh, receiving some type of strategic reassurance from the United States. Um, you know, U.S. has been a little reluctant to uh, officially recognize a relationship of mutual nuclear vulnerability with China. Uh, the U.S. has been reluctant to uh, formally promise to accept a strategic stability relationship with China. The Obama administration made some uh, progress in doing so, uh, but that promise was um, withdrawn by the Trump administration uh, at least that's the interpretation of, of U.S. policy. Um, so if U.S. is, you know, could be more forthcoming in discussing uh, strategic stability with China, um, I think that may uh, get some Chinese interest in uh, starting some uh, dialogues. You know, the Chinese uh, thinking on this issue is not necessarily clear. Uh, I don't think China itself has a good idea about how to maintain strategic stability, um, what type of uh, U.S. Uh, measures 
uh, is China expecting? Um, is China asking the United States to uh, adopt a, a rhetorical policy of uh, committing to bilateral strategic stability? Or is China asking the United States to cut down its nuclear forces uh, to make its commitment uh, credible? Um, I don't think China itself has thought through uh, these questions. So a bilateral dialogue on these issues could uh, help promote internal Chinese deliberation on these issues and, ha- and help China come up with a clearer uh, position uh, on these issues. Without further clarification of Chinese thinking, I think it's very hard uh, to uh, make progress. Uh, so I think U.S. shouldn't be afraid uh, to offer uh, to have a discussion on this issue, uh, because this is something that China wants to wants to uh, wants to uh, achieve. China wants, uh, I think, U.S. to to uh, make a more uh, explicit commitment uh, on uh, strategic stability, uh, and the U.S. can use this as opportunity uh, to uh, have you know China clarify its thinking. Uh, which may lead to more substantive discussion down the road. Do you see any potential glimmers of hope on the horizon? Any uh, measures that have been successful in the past or are currently working? Any room to expand mechanisms that seem to be working and, and creating this mutual understanding? Are there any channels of dialogue that are still open? And, and where do we go from here? Um, you know, after the two presidents. Uh, had a virtual summit in November last year. They uh, discussed nuclear weapons issues. At least the Chinese president appeared to acknowledge uh, the importance of uh, having a dialogue on nuclear weapons and strategic stability. Uh, I think right now their um, their uh, officials uh, are uh, thinking about how to follow up this uh development and come up with more concrete options to look at. So we may be hearing uh, more substantive proposals from the American side in in the near-term future. Um, I don't think China has a strong interest in uh, discussing arms control issues, but if the U.S. starts with low-hanging fruits, easy measures like transparency or, you know, uh, communist building measures, risk reduction measures, those are still of interest to China. China wants to uh, avoid um, unnecessary conflicts with the United States in the foreseeable future. Uh, China is interested in discussing the impact of new technologies on nuclear stability. Um, so these um, topics could you know, be the starting point of a, a more serious and uh, long-term uh, dialogue. I think we at this moment, um, given what is going on in Ukraine and uh, there are more uh, urgent issues in the bilateral relationship, uh, nuclear weapons are not receiving uh, a lot of attention. Uh, we may have to wait and see uh, what happens, especially what specific uh, proposals the United States uh, comes up with. So over the past few months, for whatever reason, I've had a lot of uh, physicists on the show. And I know you haven't been, you know, taking physics classes for a number of years now. Um, But I'm curious, to what extent do you think the sort of mindset that being a physicist trains you in and applying it to these questions and, you know, these questions of international security, you know, not necessarily from, oh, I understand how, um, you know, arms control 
like a like the like the technical sophistications, but more but more broadly in sort of applying the logic of of physics reasoning to international relations. Is there anything that um, you know, getting more uh, trained physicists as opposed to lawyers uh, making these sorts of decisions going forward? Uh, uh, what's the what's the upside to that potentially? Well, I think the upside is. Um... Physicists and scientists, they you know they want to base their policy analysis on facts, right? They care more about facts. They want to get the facts strict, and this is what is seriously lacking in current policy study uh, in China and and maybe other places too. Um, as I said, the many of the policy experts they know very little about uh, the technical aspects of uh, international security issues. And they just base their understanding on a hearsay. And they, you know, they just listen to what the state media says and they just believe it. And then they, you know, uh, provide their policy analysis and make policy recommendations based on it. Uh, without uh, being aware that their understanding about the facts may be totally inaccurate. But as physicists, as scientists, I think people uh, are more aware of the necessity to uh, to develop uh, balanced understandings about facts. So I think the challenge today is uh, the scientists, the uh, physicists that are not speaking up uh, they may have their personal views about facts, but because of the overall political environment, they don't feel safe or uh, they don't feel, um, you know, they, they, they can't speak up. So there's no one there to correct uh, the, the factual errors uh, that is so widespread in the national narrative. Uh, I think that's deeply wor- uh, worrisome. So hopefully, you know, uh, given the st- stakes are rising, given the risk of a major strategic misunderstanding between uh, China and the West. It's now time for the scientists, for the engineers, uh, for the physicists to speak up, to conduct balanced and objective research and to inform their policy experts, colleagues, and to inform the decision makers of what the facts are. And, And hopefully that will provide some opportunity uh, to uh, contain the serious information gap and perception gap between the two sides. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Let's let's all hope we can get a few more Andrei Sakharovs in the 21st century. Uh, Tong and Raven, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you so much.
强过，趁着我的把心还能给我的发 is popping， 好多人笑我把我勾搭到天涯。我想把他们给甩掉，但就来找你。只要我在你左右，就要来临摹消爱到你。我感觉在不停的加剧。你总能识破我把戏，我来的在你心前，买两张机票带你去旅行到菲律宾。我直接带你雨淋，看你毛我都得心，保留寓意，当天空在追平，淋到你日下之夜。哎哎哎哎，装满了对你的爱，就像雨水，院子落叶。哎哎哎哎，照片在床上堆了厚一叠，日下之夜。哎哎哎哎，装满了对你的爱，就像。在叽叽喳喳叫个不停，忙和我想了解，都静静悄悄靠近，明明就很想我的你，会想念。那天我低头看你睁大的眼，还有谁？语言没说完是个下雨的夜，雨下着夜，我的爱一出就像。院子落叶，照片在我的床上堆了厚一叠。雨下整夜，我的爱一束就像雨水。院子落叶，照片在我的床上堆了厚。